Happy Mother's Day. And I want to talk to you about the best mom ever. My wife Sandy was here in the first service, and, and I, I embarrassed her by making her stand and, uh, and telling her that when we're talking about the best mom ever, you might think I'm talking about Sandy. And, uh, you know, and, and also the best grandma ever because, uh, uh, you know, we have three grandsons and now a granddaughter on the way. And we're, ju we're just loving it. Just a great season uh, in, in our lives. And, and, but I have to honestly say Sandy is almost the best mom ever. And you kind of go, what? What are you saying, Rick? You're going to get yourself in trouble. Well, I think you, we would all agree that the best mom ever was Mary the mother of Jesus, right? And uh, so Sandy, she's right up there, okay? She's, she's almost there, but I think we have to say, so, so she's almost the best mom ever. Mary is, is the best mom ever. So imagine being the mother of Jesus. Imagine him being a little infant, and then he's a toddler. What was Jesus like in the terrible twos? You know, what was he like as an eight-year-old? What was he like as a we actually have a story in the Scripture, in Luke 2, we're going to read it, of what he was like as a 12-year-old. And uh, what about Jesus' siblings? You know, he had some brothers and sisters later on. He was the firstborn of the, of the family. And, and, uh, and Jacob, who, uh, uh, or James, who later wrote the book of James, you know, in, in the New Testament, he was like technically the half-brother of, of Jesus. And what would it take for your own brothers and sisters to believe that you're the Messiah? I mean, wow. I mean, and what would it have been like for Mary and Joseph? I could just hear, you know, James or one of the siblings saying, Mom, Jesus is pulling the God card again. You know, what, 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 I mean, we can only imagine what, some of the dynamics going on. And maybe you're here today and you're a mother, you're a father, and, and you're just feeling inadequate as a parent. Maybe you feel like your family is not really all together and, and you have issues and and what I want you to see today, that there's so much hope for you, so much grace for you, so much possibility for you. And what I want you to see today is that even Mary, the best mom ever, and Joseph and baby Jesus, they, they had their problems too. They, they, were, they were the best family ever, and yet they had their issues too. And so I want to encourage you today to be godly parents, be godly parents, not perfect parents. We need to get over this. You're not going to be a perfect parent. You're not going to have perfect kids. So we, we need to get over that, that kind of guilt trip kind of thing. But we can be godly parents where, where we're open to the Holy Spirit, where we're open to the teachings of Christ, and where we can have love and joy and a healthy dynamic going on. And so when you make mistakes, and when you mess up, and we all do, and we all will, there, there's grace and there's love to, to go around. So you can be a godly parent, okay? You can be a godly mother, a godly father. Paul Harvey once reported that there were two small towns in Illinois. There was a town called Normal, Illinois, and a town called Oblong, Illinois. And, and in the newspapers, on one occasion, there was an, a, a marriage announcement, and it said, normal man marries oblong woman. And, you know, just incredible. And, it, and, you know, I got thinking, wow, you know, none of us is totally normal, right? We all are a bit oblong. And even after we come to Christ, there can be amazing change and all that. But in this life, we always have something a little oblong about us. Anybody have any oblong kids? 
You know, some of us are more oblong than others. But the, the good news is, is that Jesus Christ offers us the forgiveness of sins, eternal life, life change, His presence, His grace. And so that our families, if we're open, if we're humble, He can really take a lot of that oblongness and work it out of us over time. And we can enjoy a healthy happy family. So let's talk about being godly parents, godly families today. Let's seek God's wisdom as we talk about raising godly kids. So let, turn in your Bibles to Luke 2, 41, and let's read this story. Jesus is now 12 years old. In the first couple chapters, Luke has already recorded you know, his birth and, and some of those early stories that we love to read at Christmas time. But here in chapter 2, verse 41, he's now 12 years old. And here's the story. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. They began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, parents, imagine, your kid's lost. You're looking for him for three days. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Luke, who wrote this gospel, probably got this story directly from Mary. Because if you turn to Luke chapter 1, the first paragraph, Luke says that he, he researched everything carefully and he talked to many of the eyewitnesses. And so it's very likely that Luke got this story directly from Mary herself. Think of it. She's the best mom ever, and yet they have these, this kind of problem. Can you see her? I'm just trying to enter into the story and imagine this story. They've lost Jesus. Joe, have you seen Jesus? No, I thought he was with you. Where's he at? Well, let's go. Let's check out the cousins. Let's check out the families. Let's check out some friends and neighbors. And he's nowhere to be found in this caravan as they're moving along. And so Jesus, they lost Jesus. Now, he's not really lost. Jesus knew exactly where he was. He was back in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. He's having a good time. But Joseph and Mary are stressing out. When our daughter Carrie was a young teenager, we were on vacation in Negril, Jamaica, and Carrie had a friend with her, uh, Jessica Lewis. One afternoon, we lost Carrie and Jessica for almost three hours. Sandy said, honey, do you know where Carrie and Jessica are? I said, no, don't. <laughs> We started looking. We looked in our room. We looked around the pool. We looked through the restaurants. I started running up and down the beach going further and further. We couldn't find them. 
we started to panic. I mean, it is incredible the fear and the panic and the thoughts that just start leaping all over your brain and your heart. We were running here and there and everywhere trying to, to find them. One of the workers told us that they thought Carrie and Jessica had gotten into a taxi cab and left. And we said, no, they would never do that. We were searching frantically for several hours. And finally, we see Carrie and Jessica bopping in to the hotel, just happy, big grins on their face with their hair braided. And we go, Carrie, Jessica, where have you been? What, what, what is going on? We have been looking for you. And they said, oh, there was a Jamaican woman who had offered to braid their hair. And she, and she said, oh, it's just right down here. Uh, and, and so let me take you. And she started leading. And then she said, well, actually, it's just, it's just right down here. And she got them into a taxi cab. And Carrie said, you know, as we got into the taxi cab, I had this feeling like I shouldn't do this. But, you know, the lady seemed so nice. And she said it was just right here. And, well, it ended up being like a mile, mile and a half down the road. And after like three hours, they come bopping in with their hair. Have you ever lost a child? I mean, even for like two minutes. And you're like, <gasps> three hours. So I, w I wonder how Joseph and Mary were. And, and I, I have to tell you, Sandy was a lot like Mary on that occasion. You know how, she, how, how Mary said, uh, Jesus, why have you done this? Well, Mary said, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. We had a little talk that day. The panic. And th this is how Mary and Joseph felt. Apparently they were traveling in a huge caravan with family, friends. It was common for kids to hang out together here, go here, and, and one family. It, you know, Some of us have made that trip there in Israel on a nice air-conditioned bus. But Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they, they were walking. They were in this, this caravan. And, and by bus, it's like an hour, I don't know, maybe two hours, but... But walking with children in a caravan like this, it, it, it took like three days. Three days, maybe even four. By the way, I'm going again to Israel this end of October, beginning of November. Be uh, like our, my fourth time to go. Some of you have gone. If you have any interest in going to Israel with me, uh, let me know. And uh, time is starting to really get close. So, so if you're interested in going to Israel this fall with me, let me know. So Joseph and Mary... They're, 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 they're just panicked, and they start looking for Jesus, and they can't find him. I wonder, did Joe and Mary get into any of the blaming and shaming? Husbands and wives, we know about this, don't we? Can we just be honest, the blame-shame game, right? You know, we, we try to shame each other. We try to blame each other. We're all tempted to do this. Joe, I told you. I told you we shouldn't have given Jesus this much leeway. You know, and, and I wonder, how much, how much blaming and, and shaming? You know, if you would have just listened to me, I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I wonder how much of that went on. They travel all the way back to Jerusalem. They look for him in the gymnasium. He's not there. They look for him at the mall of Jerusalem. He's not there. They look for him at the ball game, and he's not there. They finally find him, guess where? At church, in the temple, talking with the religious leaders. What a kid, huh? Yeah. Now, of course, they're relieved. They're so relieved, but they're so upset. Verse 48 says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. 
His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. You know what the, the Greek word in, uh, there for anxious means? It means anxious. It means really upset, really, really perturbed. And, and that, that's what they were. And I think, you know, Sandy and I, we were, we were anxious and we were upset for maybe barely three hours. This was three days, three days. She said, how could Jesus do this? You know, didn't he know his parents would be upset? You know, we could, we could, when you really jump into the story, you start scratching your head and going, hmm, well, you know, what about this? What about, how, how, how did this happen? You know, but we do know that the story has a happy ending. If you read, you know, we just read the end of it. It says Jesus went home and he was an obedient teenager to mom and dad. Teens, you hear that? Jesus was an obedient teenager to his mom and his dad. So if you want to be like Jesus, okay, I'm just saying, okay. Have some obedience to your parents. I want to use this story to reflect on three ways that we can raise healthy kids. If Mary, the best mom ever, had anxious moments like this, how do we, you know, kind of oblong people, uh, not like Mary and Joseph, not as good as them, but, but how, how can we raise our kids well? I want to suggest three ways. The first way is prepare your kids for life. Prepare your kids for life. Well, one of our God-given responsibilities as parents is to prepare our kids for life. Even though Mary was upset with Jesus for doing this, the story has a happy ending. They all went home together. Jesus was obedient to them. And Mary pondered this in her heart. She's wondering, wow, this Jesus, he's a special boy. Luke 2.52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus was 12 years old at this time, just entering puberty. And isn't it fascinating to think of Jesus as a 12-year-old? How does this work? God, the Son, creator of the universe, became flesh, little baby. We celebrate that at Christmas time. He grew up. What was he like as a 2-year-old, as a 5-year-old, as a 12-year-old? Wow, it just blows our minds. But notice this verse. It says Jesus grew in wisdom. That's intellectually. He grew in stature. That's physically. He grew in favor with God. That's spiritually. And he grew in favor with man. That's socially. He grew in these four key ways. This is our goal as parents. We should help our children grow intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. I've just started reading a book, uh, not even close to finishing it, but just started reading it. It's called The Coddling of the American Mind. The Coddling of the American Mind. It's not a religious book. It's written by two experts out there in the sociological world. Uh, and I don't, I don't even think they're Christians. But it's a fascinating look at what's going on in America today. Did you know that the experts are saying today that on average, kids are much more immature than they used to be. And it's a nationwide phenomenon. For example, the average 18-year-old entering into college, entering into the university today, on average, has, has the emotional and social skills of a 15-year-old. Most sociologists now agree that, that the kids are not really entering adulthood. You know, they're, they're saying that adulthood now is really pushed back to age 27. 27! What in the world is going on? 
Now, why is this? What, what is happening? Now, by the way, I know that our young people here at CCC are exceptions, okay? I mean, I, we know this, right? I mean, they, they are, they're, way, they're way up here, okay? But, so we're talking about the other kids, okay? Uh, you know, what, what is going on? The, the, the two authors of this book, Coddling of the American Mind, have all kinds of evidence to suggest that parents and society in general, we're just coddling our kids too much. We are overprotecting them. We have a culture of safetyism. We have a culture of fear. And of course, technology, the whole social media thing is having a huge impact. And so now our society, the younger generations are coming up to, to where we, you don't know how to, to sit down and have an open, honest dialogue, especially where you may disagree about things and you can debate ideas and maybe even it gets a little robust, even a little heated, but where you can, you can discuss ideas and think, you know, people who have different opinions than you do. And, 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 and so it's all about, oh, he offended me. So you can't say that. It might offend somebody. And we create these safe spaces. Safe spaces? Really? Is it? Oh, so this is a dangerous place? And now this is safe? Well, what? What? No, every, you know, thing, every, every place should be safe for all of us. What, what is this idea of safe spaces? And so we're, we're, we're so concerned about not offending anybody. The subtitle of the book is called How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. So, so many parents, they have the greatest intentions. They love their kids. In fact, someone told me just after the first service, if I heard this new term, and I hadn't. You know, we've all heard the, the term of helicopter parents. You know, they're just kind of swooping over their kids all the time, trying to protect them and care for them. Well, now there's a new term. I heard it for the first time like an hour ago called lawnmower parents. <laughs> lawnmower parents. They're out in front of their kids mowing the path. Okay, it's safe now. Everything, you know, I've cleared the way. I've done everything. Lawnmower parents. Fits right into what, what I'm reading in this book, The Coddling of the American Mind. See, you and I, we need to prepare our kids for life. Don't coddle them. Allow them to learn and allow them to make mistakes and allow them to pay some consequences. Uh, some time ago, the Houston Police Department undertook a massive public relations campaign. The crime rate among teenagers had, had been rising dramatically. And it had become a, a crisis for the city of Houston. And billboards were placed all around the city with messages to parents about raising their children. And one of the most well-received messages was a, a pamphlet entitled 12 Rules for Raising Delinquent Children. So if you want to raise a delinquent child, here's what you do. Number one, begin with infancy to give the child everything he wants. And this way he will grow up to believe the world owes him a living. Number two, when he picks up bad words, laugh at him. This will make him think he's cute. Number three, never give him any spiritual training. Wait until he's 21 and then let him decide for himself. Number four, avoid the use of wrong. He, he may develop a guilt complex. This will condition him to believe later when he's arrested for stealing a car that society is against him and he is being persecuted. Number five, pick up everything he leaves lying around. Do everything for him so that he will be, he, be experienced in throwing all the responsibility on others. Number six, let him read any printed matter he can get his hands on. Be careful that the silverware and drinking glasses are sterilized, but let his mind feast on garbage. Number seven, quarrel frequently in the presence of your children. 
And this way they won't be so shocked when the home is broken up later. Number eight, give a child all the spending money he wants. Never let him earn his own. Number nine, satisfy his every craving for food, drink, and comfort. See that his every sensual desire is gratified. Number ten, take his part against neighbors and teachers and policemen. They're all prejudiced against your child. Number eleven, when he gets into real trouble, apologize for yourself by saying, I never could do anything with him. And number twelve, prepare for a life of grief. You will be likely to have it. Moms and dads, are you preparing your kids for life? Or are you coddling them? Are you that lawnmower, (laughs) mom or dad? Right here, Luke 2. Help your kids grow intellectually, physically, spiritually, socially. Prepare your kids for life. And then secondly, play with your kids for fun. Yes, prepare them for life, but play with your kids for fun. Psalm 127, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a real blessing. Children are gifts from God. We should enjoy them and have fun together. Some of my favorite memories are, are playing with, with our two kids, Corey and Kerry, when they were real little. And they were, they, they were just preschoolers. And I can remember coming home from work and, and they would meet me at the door and they were so excited. And one would grab this leg and one would grab this leg. And they, they were like about this tall and, and they're trying to, to wrestle me down. And I, and I pretend that they're taking me down to the ground. And we would just laugh and we would have so much fun. And I made it a point almost every evening to play with the kids. And we would just have a good time together, bonding and loving on each other. And give mom a break. Some of the best memories in in my life. By the way, this book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, says that a huge problem today is lack of unsupervised playtime. Our kids need unsupervised playtime. Playtime. I mean, you know, appropriate supervision. We're not talking about craziness here. But our kids, we have our kids' lives so regimented between school and supervised sports, thinking that, well, you know, my kid is the one who's going to get the scholarship, and my kid's the one who's going to be professional. And and we drive them, and we drive them, and we put these expectations on them when it's like 0.001% of, you know, any kid ever makes it to the pros. And and these sociologists are saying that unsupervised playtime is so important. It's true in the animal kingdom, and it's true in the human kingdom. You know, you've seen where the the little baby animals, you know, they're rough and tumbling and they're playing and stuff. Well, what they're doing is they're actually learning and preparing to be adults. And and we need to let our kids have unsupervised playtime where they learn how to talk things out and to solve their own problems, and to make up their own games, and take on some personal responsibilities, and do your best not to intervene and solve everything for them, and have all the answers for them. And, and, and so you know, we, we regiment their lives, supervise sports, school homework, and all this stuff, and, and we, we, we do everything, and then we wonder why they haven't learned how to figure things out for themselves. Because we've never let them. Josh McDowell in his book, Knowing Right from Wrong, says rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. If your home is so full of rules 
and regulations, but you have very little relationship with your kids, you're headed for trouble. Yes, you need some rules. Yes, you need some expectations. But these rules and regulations and expectations need to be in the context of, of a loving relationship where there's a lot of laughter and there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of honor and there's a lot of respect. My, my son Corey and I used to play basketball together. He's now 6'4", but when he was little, he thought I was NBA material. I mean, Corey thought I was, I was hot stuff. We were living in Milwaukee, and, and I remember I took the family to Wendy's restaurant after church, one, uh, after church softball game one evening. And as we're waiting in line, and uh, you know how oftentimes they have these, these pictures on the wall, and, and they were the, all these pictures of, of uh, NBA basketball players. No names, just their pictures. And, uh, and I'm going, oh, look, Corey, here's Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, look, Corey, here's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And, and I'm naming all these players. And Corey goes, wow, Dad, how do you know them? Are they your friends? And I go, Corey, I said, you know, th these, these are professional basketball players. These are some of the best basketball players in the world. Almost everybody knows their names. And I said, they're the best in the world. And he, oh, and he looked at them and he looked at me and he said, Dad, are they as good as you? I said, well, you know. But you see, we, we, need, we need to have laughter and fun in our families. How much, how much laughter, how much fun do you have in your home? Yes, you need to prepare your kids for life. Yes, you need to discipline them, correct them appropriately. But it all needs to be done in the context, in the environment of relationships of love and laughter and honor. How much of that is going on in your home? Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. So prepare your kids for life. Don't coddle them. Play with them for fun. And then thirdly, point your kids to God. Oh my goodness, point your kids to God. Think of this. As godly parents, Joseph and Mary would have taken Jesus to the synagogue every Sabbath. I've actually been, some of us have actually been to the synagogue in Capernaum. And on the last trip that I went to, they, it was a new discovery, uh, and, and, and we actually went there. It was down in Magdala. Remember Mary Magdalene in, in the Gospels? Mary Magdalene, Mary of Magdala. And there's this little village just down from Capernaum on the, on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. A new archaeological discovery that they're still in the process of digging up. They discovered a synagogue that dates to the time of Christ. And so we got to sit in the synagogue. It's not even as big as this stage. And to actually be on location and know that Jesus in his adult ministry actually taught at this synagogue. Wow. And, and because we know from the Gospels, it says Jesus went throughout Galilee and taught in their synagogues. And this was a major synagogue at his time. And so here are Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They, they're going now to the temple. They, they would take him to the synagogue every, every Sabbath day, but then they would go to Jerusalem. They would actually go to the temple several times a year because uh, three times a year, every Jewish male, and it ended up being usually the family, the whole family would go uh, three times a year for Passover, for Pentecost, and for tabernacles. 
three major Jewish festivals where they would all go and have a big camp meeting together there in Jerusalem. And, and Luke tells us not only Joseph, but Mary went too, and a large caravan of family and friends. And, and look at this. The fact that this story happened when Jesus was 12 years old is very significant because the 12th year of, of a child's life, they go through this ceremony, which he is formally, he, he formally commits to obeying the law, the Old Testament, the, the Torah, especially the first five books of the Old Testament. And at age 13, the boy becomes a bar mitzvah, or a son of the commandment. Bar means son, and mitzvah means commandment. Son of the commandment, bar mitzvah. And, and so here is Jesus, his 12th year. He's preparing probably for his bar mitzvah. And, and, and of course, we know that Jesus was more than an ordinary Jewish boy, more than an ordinary bar mitzvah, son of a commandment, because he was also Lord of the commandment. Think about this. The Lord of the commandment is submitting himself to be a son of the commandment. It's just incredible that even the Jewish teachers were like amazed. Who is this boy? So signs were already showing even at the tender age of 12. Now, you might think, this has always fascinated me. You might think that Jesus, but especially Joseph and Mary, if any family, if any family had the right to say, you know what? We don't need to go to synagogue. We don't, we don't need to go down to Jerusalem. We don't need to make that trip. We don't need to go to the temple. We don't need to go to church. We've got our own personal Messiah right here. I mean, we got God in our house. Well, what do we, we don't need to go to church. We, we don't need to go to synagogue. We don't know. But they didn't think that way. They realized that Jesus was not their own personal Messiah, but he was Messiah for the world. And they realized that, that Jesus is for everybody and that, that this, God calls us to a community thing, a family thing, and we're all in this together. So they make the trip and they go to synagogue and they participate in the life of the community. Mom and dad, pointing your children to God means especially pointing them to God's church, to God's community of faith, where they develop friends, get them involved in the children's ministry, get them involved in the youth ministry, link up with some other Christian families, and you do life together. This is never intended to be a do-it-yourself kind of religion. It's meant to be in community. So, and understand, mom and dad, your primary goal is not to raise an academic scholar or a beauty queen or a multimillionaire or a star athlete. Your primary goal as parents is to raise children who are disciples of Jesus. The greatest thing you can ever do for your children is point them to God. Teach them and show them and resource them so that they know what it looks like. And, and you are showing them that you are a sinner saved by grace. And you're so grateful for Jesus. You're so grateful for God. And you're part of the community of faith. And you, you show them what it looks like to be passionately in love with God. And on mission for Jesus with other believers in this world. 
strive to be that kind of godly parent. Not perfect, but godly. Humble, open. When you make mistakes, and you will, we all do, you say, I'm sorry, but I'm trying to get this right. And you're humble, and you're open, and you're joyful, and you're filled with the Spirit of God, and you're getting advice and help from other Christian families too. I love Joshua 24, 15, where Joshua says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I love that. We live in a culture where it's becoming increasingly difficult to really be a disciple of Jesus. And you and I need to have this attitude that Joshua had. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. That's what we need today, moms and dads with this kind of courage. Our family is going to serve the Lord. Our family is going to be a Christ-centered family. Sunday is the Lord's day. Yes, we love our, our, our sports and we love our kids in sports and we want them to grow physically and, and you know, in sports and all the, all the other things academically, but we want them to grow most of all spiritually and in their character and we're going to point them to God. We're going to point them to the church. And you know what? Sunday is the Lord's day. We're going to church. We're going to make friends with other Christian followers. We're going to do life together with other Christians. We're going to have fun together. We're going to serve together. We're going to be on mission together for Jesus. Amen?